0: Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg, and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on catch-up, to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times It's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report, and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the latest on the invasion of Ukraine, with award-winning novelist and author Zarina Zabriskie, who is in Odessa. Zarina grew up in Russia and witnessed firsthand the rise and rise of Vladimir Putin in her home city of St. Petersburg, and we'll hear from her shortly. First, though, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscribers to the Byline Times, our wonderful monthly newspaper edited by Hadeep Matharu. We report without fear or favour and hold the rich and the powerful to account because our funding comes from ordinary readers taking out subscriptions to the Byline Times. There's no oligarch or non-DOM telling us what to say. So if you can please subscribe. You get details at our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you've already taken out a subscription, thank you. Let's get the latest then from Odessa, the strategically vital Ukrainian port, which is currently being targeted by Russian bombs. Odessa, on the Black Sea coast in the south of the country, is Ukraine's third largest city behind Kiev and Kharkiv, and it's their only deep-water port. As a result, around two-thirds of Ukraine's imports and exports pass through it. That's important for the rest of us too, as Ukraine was, until the outbreak of war, the fourth largest grain exporter in the world. If Odessa falls, it would also open a corridor between Russia in the east and an officially unrecognised breakaway Russian-speaking enclave of Moldova called Transnistria in the west. All in all, Odessa's fate is is vitally important, not just to those who live there, but to each and every one of us listening. So let's get an update now with Zarina Zabrisky, who is there and reporting for various news outlets, including sometimes the Byline Times. Zarina, how are you doing? Just describe the current situation in Odessa, please, if you would.
1: Uh, Yes, Adrian, and thank you for giving such a concise yet deep uh, portrait or, uh, summary profile of Odessa. Uh, yes, Odessa is very important, just as any other city, but, um, due to its history and its strategic location, and yes, the importance to, um, the world because of the, uh, impending food crisis, Uh, We can't overestimate the importance of Odessa um, during this war. So I've been based here, and um, uh, actually, just a very tiny correction, Uh, yes, I was born in Russia, but my family is from Ukraine and from Odessa, so I spent a lot of time during my childhood here. Um, and it's my second home and now it's my first, (laughs) my main hometown. So, um, yeah, we spoke last time, um, before the deadly attack on Sirhivka, I believe, because we were going to have this talk and then there was, uh, this crisis in the UK and uh, you guys were focusing on it, so we never got to speak about it. Uh, and um, what happened then, by now in the war uh, time zone, in a war time perception, it feels like ages ago because every day something is happening, but um, it was not that. Long time ago, it's um, on the thirtieth of June. Uh, Russians left what's called Zmini uh, Ostrov, was um, Snake Island, uh, and I actually walked uh, on by the beach as the operation was happening, and I heard uh, the the I guess what was shock waves reaching the shore. It was a very strange feeling. You felt the ground kind of booming underneath your feet. And, well, sure enough, it turned out that uh, the Ukrainians liberated the island uh, to which Russians responded, saying that they left as an act of goodwill. So, lo and behold, and sure enough, the next day they uh, bombed possibly, is another goodwill act. Um, a, a small resort town called Sergivka, which is about like an hour drive from Odessa. So I went to report from there, and that was quite horrible. By now I've been reporting from several bombed uh, residential buildings, and you never can get used to it, really. Um, the, the, the charred Rubble and the, you know, I didn't get to see the bodies because by the time we drove there, the rescues already did that part of the work. But you speak to people whose relatives were in there or the residents of the buildings who now don't have any place to live. And you see the shock in their eyes because it's a very peaceful village. It's very small. They're about like, 10 or 15 not really high rise buildings, but nine story buildings. And it's all by the shore. And then some are usually people from Odessa and from around, uh, come to vacation there. And there are a lot of hotels. So one of these hotels was ruined and, um, I got to speak to some amazing people. There was this 17-year-old boy uh, who woke up. No, he, was, he didn't wake up. He was smoking a cigarette at the balcony across the yard from a place where his grandma lives and he uh, saw a rocket and he heard the explosion, the first one, and he rushed there and he managed to pull his grandmother out of the apartment and save her and then uh, he saw uh, a woman uh, a woman kind of buried underneath the rubble but actually he saw the feet and so he dragged her out and then rescuers arrived and they asked this 17 year old kid to help and so he spent the rest of the night hauling dead bodies and when he spoke to me he looked at me with his big eyes and he, he said you know I'm 17 I'm not supposed to be doing these things um, and it, it was very, very uh, heartbreaking, as you can imagine. I found a puppy there under the rubble, and we rescued the puppy. I couldn't take it with me because I'm renting a small apartment. But there were good people, and Ukrainians are very, very good to their animals. Amazingly, so, so I'm kind of, you know, confident about this puppy's good fate. Um, and so what happened? Basically, Russians. Uh, took revenge for having to give away uh, the Snake Island. And that pretty much characterizes their everyday acts here. It's like they're speaking some secret language of war symbols or, or language of aggression. Uh, because anytime that something is being ruined, you could see why it's happening. It's either some a uh, high rank official from the EU arriving to Kiev, or there might be some negotiations, or the uh, next uh, package of sanctions has been approved. And as non verbal response, we get bond, and um, we had air raids practically non stop. And there was this one weekend where suddenly there were no air raids. For about like three days, there were no air raids. And it was amazing. It was uh, uh, like nothing interrupts you going around your business. Nothing interrupts your thoughts. Uh, and But we all know that actually there's nothing good about it because by the end, they will hit really hard. And sure enough, they do. They do. They um, they bombed uh, suburbs at this point. And luckily, there were no um, casualties. Just people were injured, but lightly. And just the other day, uh, on Sunday, I woke up and I, I write reports every day for Euromaidan press, but I was hoping to take the rest of the day off because... You know, without any breaks, it's starting to get hard. And sure enough, in the morning, it, as they call here, it arrives. So it arrived and it hit, um, what turned out to be a sewing, um, little factory, not really a factory, but it's a very small facility. So I went there and this is fairly small, cozy city. And after spending a while here, you get to know people. So, the owners of this factory, uh, so in factory, actually friends over neighbors' friends. So I got to speak to them. And they, they, sure enough, there were nothing to do with the military in that yet another bombed building. Um, and so it goes like this every day there is a day raid. The other day at night, that was quite unpleasant. There was a huge explosion right next to me. And the reason I know it's right next to me because the car alarms start to go off and the dogs start barking. And it's after curfew, so the city is really, really quiet and all you hear is the siren and sometimes it's joined by the church bells. And so there's this racket and then it goes, boom! And uh, then all the cars and the dogs and whatnot. And then again, it's very, very quiet. And you don't know what happened and you can't even as a journalist. I'm not allowed to leave my premises. It's also not very smart because they always hit the second time. So the journalist in me wants to run out there and see what, what's going on and report. But then the human in me says like, okay, you'll do it in the morning. And then in the morning, you, you never find out about some of these things because Fair enough. Uh, The Ukrainian authorities report uh, the civil infrastructure damage, but they do not comment whenever something of military significance is being hit. It's just the law of the war. So sometimes you you find yourself in this not knowing. I want to report, I want to know, but I might not ever find out.
0: But, but You know, Zarina. I mean, you talk about, uh, you know, this conflict sometimes between being a reporter and being a human being, and uh, effectively now you are a, a war reporter, but I mentioned at the top of this that you have written novels as well, and you've got a great novelist eye for detail. Last time we spoke, we discussed a night at the opera, the fact that the people of Odessa have come together to reopen the theatre in the city, and your ticket comes with a ticket to a, a bomb shelter as well, so that opera and drama have been able to resume, albeit amid the bombing campaign from the Russians. And recently, for byway News as well, you wrote about a a. a, a Pride or a, a, a demonstration of LGBTQ plus community in Odessa. People keen to create a, a more progressive society. Hopefully, post-war in Ukraine as well.
1: Yes, and uh, both is correct. And since the opening of the opera theatre, I've been to so many concerts. Most of them have been held uh, in the basements now. So it's very clever. I've been to the Ukrainian theater and it was a very moving performance. On my Twitter, I shared a, a short clip uh, and so once you're in the basement, you don't have to leave if there's a raid. So you don't even know there's a raid because they ask you to turn off your phone and you're already in the basement. So you just watch the show. And I've been to a classical music concert since then. Some musicians, um, are coming to visit yesterday. I interviewed Julian Milkes, who is a world renowned, um, clarinetist and he gave several concerts that was very popular, and one of them was in the basement as well. And yes, there are all sorts of exhibits and uh, films, and one of the exhibits was this Pride um, LGBTQ um, Association uh, from Kiev brought a photo exhibit to Odessa, and they're planning to take it around the country. And I got to speak to this wonderful young people um they're very inspiring uh they now turn it's very unusual in a way that it, i'm from san francisco so of course the gay community is very very active there fighting for human rights volunteering very visible very present but you are used to seeing people fighting for rights by pro- putting together protests or marches at best uh you don't uh expect to see anybody not just gay community or any community to put on the fatigues and go to war and sit in trenches with kalashnikovs uh and it is especially uh um what is the right word here like uh, not it's not jarring but like there's this Effect of surprise, right? Because there's a photograph of a beautiful drag queen, it's totally like in San Francisco with a beautiful wig and uh, impeccable makeup. And then the next picture is the same drag queen who is uh, uh, wearing military uniform and building coffins for the people killed by the Russians in Bucher, Pen Hostom, Aliol, Uh, heard about this little towns close to Kiev and the atrocities that the Russians committed there. So uh, we don't think about details, right? You mentioned details, but it's all about details because now here she is building coffins. And like once that, that, you know, task is done, uh, she has about two million bees. So she makes honey to sell it to fundraise for the army. And then you see there are lesbian soldiers who operate drones. They are openly non-binary people who um, like a couple serves in the army and there's a picture of them in the trenches. And in an incredible way it changes what was somewhat traditional society before because Ukrainians see that, aha, this they are just like us. One of the uh, people I spoke to, uh, one of the uh, managers, the project managers for the association, he said, like, before there was this mysticism. Like, people didn't know um, w- what, what this whole gay scene is about. They thought we were very different. But now they see we're just... The same as any other Ukrainian, a couple of people said, we're just as brave as any other Ukrainian and we fight for our freedom and for democracy probably even harder than any other Ukrainian because it's, you know, the desire to become a part of the European Union, to share the values of a democratic society where human rights, individual rights and individuality are at the top. Of the of the value list, as opposed to the authoritarian societies like Russia or the former Soviet Union, where your uh, your personality didn't matter and wh- whatever differences you had was basically criminal, because uh, 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 homosexuality was illegal uh, and uh, was punished by by a prison term, a sip term at that in uh, the Soviet Union so uh, you see the it, it's all Ukrainians I mean the majority the vast majority of Ukrainians have European values and they're very aware of that and so it was very moving and significant to see that and uh, the last thing I mentioned here is that in Ukraine they have a law By which, if a petition from the public reaches 25,000 signatures, the president has to review it and take an action. And so, somebody started a petition for uh, gay marriage, for equality marriage, and now it has reached very, very rapidly. It reached 25,000 signatures, and now Zelensky has to review it and take a decision. And uh, some people told me that most likely they won't legalize a gay marriage, but they will um have some law that will allow civil partnership
0: yeah so signs of progress at least uh, perhaps slower than much of Western Europe, but definitely signs of uh, progress for a a progressive civil society in Ukraine post-war. Vladimir Zelensky hasn't had an entirely happy time of it, has he lately, Zarina? Uh, And by the way, you mentioned your Twitter feed. I think because you're doing so much work on this, I would recommend people to follow your Twitter feed at Zarina Zabrisky. But let's talk about Zelensky because he had to sack the head of Ukraine's security service and the state prosecutor, and his claim that there are hundreds of cases of treason and collaboration with Russia, which is pretty disturbing to hear.
1: Yes, uh, totally understandable. Um And I was thinking about it. What's the best way to sum it up in a brief and clear way for people who are not familiar with Ukrainian political landscape? And I can tell you that I have not thought of the right way to do it. Um There is a good article I can refer people to. It's called Explainer, or the excellent publication – Kiev Independent, and it's even called What's Behind Zelensky's Public Ousting of Top Officials. But if you read the whole article, and it's pretty long, uh, you might, just as I was, still end up wondering what is behind. There's no really an answer. Um, I can tell you a little bit about what my friends taught me and how I see it from after being here for many months. Um, the Ukrainian society is nothing but homogenous. It's, um, it's very, very diverse in terms of political beliefs. In terms of, um, obviously the language, the preferred language, uh, it's very different, uh, and, uh, divided, but generationally. And it has changed, uh, the society has united a lot, but there are still, um, the layers of population, I would say, and it, Somewhat depends on geographical location and also on the age of the people we talk about. But there are, um, people who are, um, who are Russian supporters, strangely enough. And they are usually, it's the older generation, somewhere, you know, anybody after 65, you know, and older, uh, and m- m- people in the, Eastern areas would be more prone to have uh, these sentiments. Why? Because just like the whole country of Russia, these people were subjected to the Russian, to the Kremlin propaganda for years.
0: So these were people's arena. And of course, we can't make any assumption of guilt in the case of the uh, officials who've been mentioned, and they will face due process in Ukraine. But 651 criminal proceedings have been issued. And as I say, they involve the prosecutor general. And the head of the security service as well. But in broad terms, then, there's a suggestion that people who were older and who lived through Soviet times when Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union may still harbor sympathies towards Russia rather than (laughs) an independent Ukraine.
1: That's just a part of the issue, and normally these people wouldn't be serving in the ranks of the army, or they wouldn't be officials in the occup- now occupied territories. Uh, when we're talking about these six hundred fifty something cases, we're talking about collaboration, and uh, not perhaps not all of these cases. Uh, would turn out to be pure collaboration because I've heard a lot from people from the occupied territories who, who managed to escape from there that sometimes people are just forced to, to work, to go back to their workplaces, say, in administration or, I don't know, transportation department. Because imagine, Adrian, you are living in a small village, say, Brodihovka, somewhere in Donetsk uh, uh, oblast. And um, the Russians arrive, and they, they have all the resources. You've already been hiding in a basement for several months. Uh, Your house is ruined. You don't have any money, no paper money, because there's no ATM working, there's no internet. The pension, the salaries are not being paid, and you have dependents. You have, say, three kids, and your mother is sick at home. And your option is to go back to work and make some money or get sometimes in some cases, not the money, but get food, get paid by food so you can feed your children. And, um, that technically these people would still be looked at as, uh, collaborators, but there are different degrees at different circumstances and the government and the people of Ukraine understand that. So they don't judge people who were really forced into it by the you know circumstantially. But there there would be people who willingly um you know jumped over the line and you know changed shoes as they say here and mm-hmm. suddenly became Russian officials and appointed. Like those people are definitely guilty and they will be prosecuted and they're looking at the term in prison and it's uh um that's that's the issue and the reason uh i think the, uh, that zelensky had to get rid of these high officials uh, who were by the way his one is his childhood friend bakanov and another one is a long term ally mm. uh, is because he had to to take some action you can't just sit around and do nothing and watch uh people in the occupied territories working for Russians, that there's, you know, as a president of the country, as a leader, you have to take an action. There, uh, I, I would refer people who are interested in that to this article in the Kiev Independent, because there are also corruption issues there. Um, my take on it, one thing I say about that as well, my feeling as a journalist, now is not the time to do the corruption investigation into Ukrainian government because, again, unity and morale are very, very important. Right now, a um, certain amount of trust into this government, I think, should be exercised because they proved themselves being efficient and loyal to the people. And once the war is over, once Ukraine wins, I'm sure there will be gazillion of independent journalists cracking into these cases, and that would be timely and appropriate, in my opinion. Sure, sure.
0: I mentioned at the start of this conversation, Zarina, the huge strategic importance of Odessa, both for Ukraine economically, because it is the hub really of economic life in Ukraine, but also strategically for Russia, if it can create this bridgehead to the west and to the area of moldova called transnistria on the economic side the U- ukraine has an oil and gas terminal which has got a storage capacity of 25 million tons it's a massive storage facility and we know that russia is seeking to weaponize fuel seeking to weaponize gas in particular and the European Union, the European Commission has said that it's looking to reduce the use of gas in Europe by 15% until next spring. And obviously, that will cover the European winter. So I just wonder how people feel in Odessa about whether that's likely to weaken Western resolve and Western support for Ukraine. Because at that point, it no longer becomes a remote conflict. It no longer is something that we see on our television screens. If you can't keep warm in winter in Berlin, in Paris, maybe in London or Birmingham, then the war becomes very real to you. Uh,
1: Yes, this is certainly a concern and that That is, you know, you see the headlines. Uh, Actually, I used it as a headline a couple of days ago. And I think the term uh, blackmail is appropriate here. And um, that's what, again, that's what Russia and the Russian Federation and Putin are known for blackmailing. Um, To me, and I think to a lot of Ukrainians, especially those who remember the... Good old Soviet Union and the nineties, uh, that rings a bell. Um, Putin comes from the bandit, uh, circles. He is a bandit. He was in St. Petersburg and he was, uh, blackmailing the foreign businessman. That was like the, the beginning of his career, uh, after the KGB when he switched from the KGB to the, Uh, service of the people. He was in charge of this uh, foreign um, uh, economic council, it was called by the mayor's office. And basically, uh, he would come or he would send people to uh, do racketeering. Like somebody would come and say, you are paying us, or if you're not paying, we're going to burn down your business. And I I know it because I translated at negotiations like this. So I know it for a fact. And that, that you know, this blackmail, you do what we want or else it's exactly what they're doing. But now they're doing on the global scale and uh, with gas and oil. You stop the sanctions now or we will cut off the gas. So um, the uh, chances that they will at this point change their behavior are pretty much next to zero. So I think what's needed is for what they call the collective West, but for for the European Union, for the United Kingdom, for uh, the United States, Australia, you know, all the the countries that are on Ukrainian side, partner countries, to realize that uh, tiptoeing around it is not going to work. And I think some countries are already looking at other sources of gas and oil, or just Entirely other sources of getting energy, which is better for the climate uh, change and for the environment anyway. And I think that's a long term solution. As for a short term solution, speaking this winter, uh, I don't know enough. I'm not an expert on gas in particular. So um, I can tell you precisely what's going to happen. But nobody's going to like it. Nobody likes to cut down. So uh, I think for us as journalists, as, you know, for people who, um, uh, uh, do an analysis in public sphere, it's important to explain, uh, why it is important to, uh, not put the blame on Ukraine per se, and to see past your own, um, uh, you know, heater at home and to understand the global significance of, of this change, that this is a short term, and on the long term, there will be a better solution, and we are all better off not being hooked on Russian gas needle.
0: No, and Because in your analysis of it, this is a war of colonialism, a war of expansion. Some people might even say, a war of genocide because Putin is determined to wipe out the sense of Ukraine as an independent nation, of Ukrainian as an independent language. And he has said himself, and we've drawn attention to this previously on the podcast, he's keen to establish a Eurasian empire. And that would link up Russia to Moldova in the West and pose who knows what threat then to Western Europe.
1: Exactly, exactly. And there's one more thing that I would like to bring up, and it's also from um from the energy sector, and it's really being overlooked, and I really, really hope that people start paying attention. It's the situation with the nuclear power plants. Uh right now, today, uh there is a critical situation yet again at the, the Zaporozhia uh nuclear plant where the Russians now moved their military equipment like tanks and explosives, uh, not just on the territory of the plant where they were already, but they opened the premises and they put this explosive stuff um, uh, in a way that, it blocks uh access to the to the exit door to the fire safety equipment uh again so it, this is a new nucle- this is the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe and uh the consequences can't be underestimated and yet I don't know how many of our listeners have heard about it. I bet you very few, if any. Mm. Uh, And the media is not covering it. There are two reasons for it from my uh, observation, my analysis, because I've tried to cover it since the beginning of the war because it's really the nuclear terrorism. But for one, it's not, it's a topic too big and too scary. So there's like psychological defenses kicking in. In, nobody wants to read about it, and and this is just not smart because we, we need to look into it. And there's a second uh, way more um, materialistic reason, and that's because the International Atomic Energy Agency is infiltrated by the Kremlin um, veterans, by the veterans of Rosatom, who work there in the top uh, management of this agency, uh, and, um, as a result, they are not acting the way they should be. They are not calling their attention to the crisis. And that, that, that needs to be changed. I'm actually right now working on getting funds to go there as close as we can. Obviously, to the Parisia and to Chernobyl to do a TV story on that. But guess what? So far, just as you said in the beginning, the the big stations, BBC, Channel 4, uh, French channels, everybody said, Oh, that's really very interesting. But right now, it's not what we are looking for. We're looking for some human stories. And that's wonderful. I write a lot of human stories. But guess what? There will be a big, human story if we don't stop the nuclear disaster we'll have no lack of human stories then but there will be nobody to tell them so if anybody's listening is interested and has a lead and wants to find very insignificant very small sum to sponsor uh the the tv reportage on the nuclear plants contact me (laughs)
0: Okay, well, as I say, people can follow you on Twitter, at Zarina Zabrisky. One more thing before we go, Zarina, and I know that the Ukrainian government and Ukrainian people generally were very grateful to Boris Johnson for his outspoken support for the country. He's now uh, about to step down as prime minister, but the United Kingdom is still showing its commitment to Ukraine. I know that today it's been announced that 50,000 shells 1,600 anti-tank weapons are going to be delivered to Ukraine. Ukraine has, I think, announced that it's going to be restricting the amount of information that it gives about the weaponry sent to it from its partners, which seems to me to be quite a shrewd move. You don't want the Russians to know exactly what kind of weapons you're getting. But it, it does underline the fact, I think, that even without Boris Johnson at the helm, the United Kingdom is a friend of, the U- of Ukraine and wants to wants to support it in a military way.
1: Uh, yes, exactly. We did a couple of pieces. Uh, there's an excellent article in Euromaidan Press where we interviewed Peter Jukes from the Byline Times as well, and also um, John Sweeney. I did a video interview with him on the topics so of anybody who wants to... More details on that uh, you can visit and watch or read the article. But basically, yeah, he was a hero here. They loved him dearly. Uh, They did not understand most people in Ukraine. I mean, uh, why, why is that the British people don't want their darling Boris anymore? And it was very hard to persuade them otherwise. And I haven't tried because... You know, I I think there are more important things and they are, you know, waiting to see what's next, who's next. And hopefully from what I see and from uh, most more importantly, what I hear from other experts and political analysts, uh, this tendency shouldn't change very much. And Ukraine still will be getting a lot of help.
0: I would imagine so. I can't see any appetite, uh, any loss of appetite from the British public at the moment anyway to uh, reduce the support for Ukraine and long may it continue. Zarina, great to speak to you as always. uh, Your reports are carried in various outlets, including the Byline Times, but also Euro Maidens Press, BioWine News and so on. If people want to follow your various works, the best thing they can do is follow you on Twitter at zarina zabriskie really grateful to you though for your time and reporting for us from odessa thank you um i'm adrian goldberg this has been byline radio or if you're listening on catch up the byline times podcast funded by subscriptions to the byline times our brilliant monthly newspaper get details of how to subscribe at our website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And don't forget as well, every Friday night at 7, you can enjoy Peter Jukes, Hardeep Matharu, and guests on Byline TV. I'm Adrian Goldberg. Thanks very much indeed for listening. See you soon. Bye-bye now.
1: Thank you.